mind, body, nutrition, the Triple Play Podcast. Because everybody's an athlete in this game of life. Get off the sidelines. Time to get in the game. Everybody, happy holidays, happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you guys have been celebrating. Hopefully you guys are having a great time spending time with your family and friends. I know a lot of you guys, myself included, eating a lot of food and, and you know, just some of us taking a break. And I love this time of year, you know, with all the festivities going on. And, you know, the main things may have changed with COVID and how we do things, how what, you know, going out and, you know, maybe some of you going to concerts, not being able to go to concerts or what have you. Things have changed. But, you know, one thing that hasn't changed is the season of giving, especially in this time of year. Um, so we're going to have a lot of giveaways. If you guys have been following me on Instagram, we've been doing some giveaways uh, these past few weeks. And we're going to be doing a lot more. And in the coming year, we're looking to partner with a bunch of different foundations that we're going to be giving towards. Um, you know, that's one of my goals of what we're going to be trying to do. Um, anyhow, it's been raining like cats and dogs here in Hawaii. Uh, and not, not the paradise, sunshine, beaches. It's been raining cats and dogs. I mean, flooding out and being craziness. You guys may hear my cat actually in the background there. We got flooding going on. We got uh, the Navy. Their fuel tanks have been leaking into our water supply. We got all kinds of stuff going on. Um, Yeah, it's been craziness. And hopefully that, you know, you guys are listening to this podcast. um, We can bring some sort of normality to your life. So in this podcast episode, I have a special guest. His name is Norman Plotkin. And Norman is a cancer survivor, and we're going to talk about hypnosis today. He's a certified clinical hypnotherapist. He's an advocate for people and author of two books. One is called Take Charge of Your Cancer, and the other one is Master Mind, Master Life. So it's a book on the history of hypnosis and its ancient beginnings. I thought this was very interesting, right? I mean, you hear the word hypnosis and all kinds of different things come to mind. So Norman was actually a former um, public policy consultant and lobbyist. And then he made a decisive life change after battling cancer, a big one, right? And then he emerged with a newfound perspective on life and living. Norman has a passion for utilizing and understanding the subconscious mind and its power to natural processes, such as hypnotherapy and coaching. Norman helps clients overcome a wide range of issues that impact the human conditions such as health, behavior, and performance. He aims to serve his clients and help them discover their power. Through all his struggles, Norman has persevered and wishes to help others persevere in their lives. He is kind, spiritual, and determined to share his knowledge and those who seek it. And you'll see from this interview that all of those things are so very true. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Hey everybody, we have a special guest on the podcast today. Uh, We got Norman Plotkin. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff surrounding hypnotherapy and his story. Um, let's let's actually jump right there. Welcome to the podcast, Norm. 
Thanks, Dr. Mike. Great to be here. Yeah. Let's start with your story. You know, when, when I got in contact with you, you know, I read your, you know, I read your one sheet and right off the bat, you know, it really attracted me um, because of your story. Would you mind um, sharing a, a, a brief introduction to your story? Not at all. Uh, so I had a 25 year career uh, in politics and lobbying and uh, it, I thought that was the greatest thing, you know, and I, I, I got to college late after the military and I did some blue collar work in oil fields. And so I was in a hurry and started out as a clerk in the legislature and worked my way through consultancies and ran campaigns. And I was at one point I was the uh, health committee consultant to the state assembly. And uh, then I lobbied for the medical association, the, the CMA, California Medical Association. And then I went out on my own. I had my own contract lobbying firm and I represented clients before the California legislature and agencies. And it was heady stuff. It was, uh, you know, very exciting. Mm -hmm. But politics is, you know, it's a dirty game. It's, it's ugly. There's, <laughs> yeah. You know, and so um, it took its toll on me. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't what my authentic self was about. And I and I ended up uh, I ended up getting sick. I, I had cancer. And interestingly enough, it was papillary carcinoma, mm. uh, thyroid cancer. So in my throat, which the throat chakra is your voice in the world. Interesting. And I didn't have my own voice. I was an advocate and I love being an advocate for others, but, but it wasn't my voice. It was always someone else's. And so I think spiritually uh, that would, had played a role in it. And so Initially, I wanted, I followed all the directions. I had a radical thyroidectomy, a lymph node resection, and uh, two rounds of radiation. And I, I just wanted to get back to normal. But the, the problem was, as I came to understand, as teachers began to appear and the likes of Wayne Dyer and Carolyn Meese and Deepak Chopra and others began to open my mind, I realized that normal was the problem and I needed a new normal. And so I dove in to what became a, about a seven-year spiritual awakening. And along the way, I was guided to uh, the power of the subconscious mind as, as uh, I navigated my cancer journey. And, um, and so I, I gained a keen interest. I also gained a keen interest in um, complementary and alternative modalities. And so the... I found my way to the nationally accredited school for hypnotherapy in Los Angeles, mm. jumped right in and didn't look back. And so, so before, it's been six years. Yeah. Before all of, before your diagnosis, were you open to any of this stuff or were, was this like a complete 180 degree turn for you? 180. I was, I represented allopathic medicine. Oh, wow. <laughs> you yeah, know, I, I knew hundreds, I knew hundreds, even thousands of doctors. And, uh, I, you know, it was all about the conventional, therapies and uh and you know that was my worldview that's what i understood and and i don't i don't try and steer people away from that i you know i focus yeah. on you know what they call complementary so i i would never i wrote a book called take charge of your cancer the seven proven steps to healing and recovery and i but i don't recommend people not see their doctor or use a an allopathic uh, approach to their therapeutic uh, strategy it's but there are ways that you can engage yourself. You see, you're the one with skin in the game and modern medicine, you get 10 minutes with the person, highly trained person. I mean, let's, let's face it. Yeah. Uh, physicians today are, are, are very well trained and educated. 
but you get 10 minutes and they're not there at 10 p.m. when the walls start to move in and you have questions, right? And mm-hmm. so we, we look for things that we can engage ourselves in, in our healing and recovery. So uh, yeah, it was a 180, definitely. So what were some of the first things like that you dove into after you started down this path? Well, the power of the subconscious mind, uh, living intentionally. I'll tell you, one of the keys for me was a friend of mine, she had gotten out of politics and opened a yoga studio. And she took me through therapeutic yoga for cancer. And most importantly, she taught me how to meditate. My overactive mind that made me a super good analyst and still does, uh, you know, was monkey mind when when you're facing complicated emotional uh, circumstances Mm -hmm. that there's a lot at stake. And so being quiet and still is super important. Um, So uh, that therapeutic yoga for cancer and then Pilates to regain my strength after the the radiation, my friend Gene really helped me out there. So learning to meditate uh, was super powerful. Also, uh, understanding that our self-talk is important, you know, because we're, we're listening. In fact, every cell in our body is listening to mm, that onboard yes. conversation that we, we all have. And as I learned about the placebo effect where, you know, the sugar pill does uh, 30% of the time does as well as the, the therapeutic and also the nocebo effect, you know, that there are studies that show that uh, over 70% of medical students suffer actually the symptoms of the diseases that they're studying about. And so we can either make ourselves sick or better. Uh, It's kind of like that Henry Ford quote, if you think you can, you're right. And if you think you can't, you're right. You know, so um, these are the things. Then Wayne Dyer's book, The Power of Intention, uh, Living Intentionally, great book. Uh, Carolyn Meese, Anatomy of Spirit, Mm -hmm. Deepak Chopra, Quantum Healing. These were the teachers that began to appear and the texts that I began to read uh, that have led me to, you know, the place where I am now is I use hypnosis in the therapeutic setting, but it mostly it's about empowerment because let's face it, people today largely surrender their power to external forces. Uh, he said, she did, the government, the corona, you know, uh, it's really easy to point outward. Yeah, and especially blame. now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Let's dive into the whole notion of hypnotherapy, you know, because, you know, I, for me, um, a little bit uh, when my wife was pregnant with our first son, we went to a, a birthing center and we went, we went with a doula. And one of the things that they talked to us about was um, using hypnotherapy during the birth process. So we actually went through a course with one of our doulas called hypno babies and me you know like you i have you know like that left brain scientific mind i was like okay hypnotherapy i've seen this on on television at the circus you know they got the the guy that they make bark and he's running around the entire ring and it for the majority of people they think about it that way but when my wife started using it and i started using it as alongside with her I started to notice things happen and she still utilizes a lot of those techniques that were taught to her uh, for pain and all that kind of stuff. But let's dive into like hypnotherapy and kind of dispel some of the myths, kind of go into the backstory of like what is hypnotherapy and what's going on in the body 
um, during hypnosis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've taken my daughter through uh, hypnobirthing three times, and she was afraid of the pain and had heard many stories from all the women that she knew. And uh, she didn't, she wanted natural, but was afraid of the pain. And mm-hmm. so I, I took a certification in hypnobirthing and took her through it three times. And there was not no pain. It was just 20 or 30 minutes, you know, rather than hours upon hours. And so it is super powerful in that setting. Lamaze is hypnosis. So even the traditional um, uh, birthing techniques, but uh, anyway, to, uh, to the larger story about hypnosis, it's an ancient modality. Uh, healers in indigenous uh, cultures all used trance, mm-hmm. shamanic yep. healers, and they induce trance in different ways. There's plant medicine, there's, uh, there's drumming, there's, um, there's many ways into trance. And so trance is a natural state. You know, if you're driving home from work and you pull into the driveway and don't remember the trip, you're in hypnosis. That's hypnoidal hypnosis. Or watching a movie and you're in it. You just feel like you're in the middle of it. That's, that's hypnosis or caught up in a good book. That moment uh, where your eyes flutter right before sleep, that's a hypnotic moment. Great time to break out your notebook and write a few goals down. Uh, so hypnoidal, hypno, there are three levels, hypnoidal, cataleptic, and somnambulism. somnambulism. So it's a natural state. And what, what's going on is just a, a deep relaxation with a focused concentration. Hmm. Now, in the old days, you know, back in the 18th and 19th century, there uh, there was a fellow, Franz Mesmer, uh, mesmerism, you may have heard the, right. the term yep. that made, popularized it, and he called it animal magnetism. But, um, you know, there was a big uproar, and the, the medical community investigated. Uh, um, Benjamin Franklin was even on the investigative committee. And, um, you know, they they because they couldn't measure what was going on in the brain, they, they, they largely attributed it to the persuasion of the, of the hypnotist and um, the subjective experience of the, uh, the client or patient. And that's been relegated to the subjective, uh, non-evidence-based realm since then, until recently when we developed amazing uh, uh, technology to measure what's going on in the brain. And there are studies... Uh, going on at Stanford under Dr. David Spiegel, also largely um, happening in the UK. There's a project called the Human Givens Project, and they're measuring what's going on in the brain. And they can uh, they can tell you that um, that part of the brain that uh, that that gets you to uh, pay attention is kind of suspended, and it also syncs up the parts of the brain uh, that control your um, heart rate and your pulse and your uh, breathing and all of these things. So the mind and body sync up and that part of you and the frontal cortex that uh, to pay attention is kind of suspended and that, that executive function part that, um, that, gets you, that would make you embarrassed about something, it, it's also suspended. So that's why you can get people up there to bark like a dog or cluck like a chicken. And um, so now it has moved into the realm of evidence-based uh, therapy therapies because we can measure what's going on. So, but it's not widely understood. But if you go to Google, uh, if you go to Google research, there are tons of studies of its application to conditions like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, or Crohn's disease, or migraines, or pain. Pain. There's uh, hypnoanesthesia that you can 
Uh, there's people that do um, the dental work and, and whole operations uh, without without general anesthesia using hypnosis only. So the the three stages that hypnoidal, you go in naturally uh, on your own. Um, catalepsy is, is usually induced through an induction. Catalepsy is characterized by your hands and feet going to sleep. Mm. And it's much like what you experience when you dream. Then you're... You may wake up from a dream and your hands and feet are kind of numb. We do that to protect ourselves or who we might be sleeping next to, right? When we're slaying the dragon in the middle of our dream, <laughs> we don't <laughs> yeah. hurt ourselves or somebody else because our, our hands and feet are kind of numb. And that's catalepsy. Somnambulism is the part where you see them go to sleep on stage. It's uh, oh. amnesia and it's more sleep-like. I work in catalepsy because I want people to be somewhat con- conscious of uh what is is happening and what and the therapy their therapeutic approach that i'm using the metaphors and suggestions you know, people will sometimes be deep in catalepsy and say well i felt like i was asleep i felt like i was snoring i said have you ever heard yourself snore when you were asleep and they said no i said well <laughs> you know that's that was the difference you you weren't asleep you were in catalepsy so um it's super powerful it's it's pervasive it's you go into it every day and part of the problem is it's ripe for uh, misappropriation by uh, hollywood and mm, you know television yeah, yeah. because it's mysterious it's it's uh it's uh, deceptively simple and that's another thing we want to make things overly complicated in this day and age but it is deceptively simple and it is extremely powerful because just as the nocebo and placebo effect work so too does uh the suspension of your conscious mind and the uh direction of your subconscious mind you know i'm talking to the part of the mind that allows you to ride a bike without having to learn how over and over and over or shift a car right and so we have these experiences and we develop behavior and um and this behavior is learned and persists Hmm. Now, if the threat that you develop the behavior is gone or the person who was threatening it, they may even be dead. But the subconscious mind is fearful of experiencing that pain again. So it holds on to the behavior. Uh, so th- these are some of the uh, reasons that we hold on to this programming. Or, you know, sometimes people get a secondary gain. They might they might receive something for holding on to this behavior like sympathy, compassion, uh, you know, an escape from boredom you know there are all kinds of reasons that people hold on to their issues it becomes their story and so uh, the first thing i usually do with people is like are you ready to write a new story yeah that's a big one you know i find that a lot with patients especially if they're going through you know a, a disease process that has a lot of emotion attached to it you know like cancer um alzheimer's all of those things um, or, you know, even, even others where they're getting that attention. So do you find that that's one of the major reasons why people have a hard time letting go because they identify with that and it, it gains attention for them? There are many reasons for secondary gain, but it, it, but that usually there is a secondary gain that they're getting and they, um, or they, or they become their story mm-hmm. and it becomes their identity. Some people, you know, we've all seen people on Facebook oversharing about their colitis or their, you know, stuff all like that. The time. And, and it and it 
right? It, it's, yeah. it's really hard to um, uh, to divorce ourselves from that sometimes when we get in that when we get in that group because here's what happens. Listen, we're really smart and we dive in and we learn all about our condition, and then we become invested in it. And um, we've been sold on the idea largely that there there's a pill that we can take, um, which I'm just I'm just so I'm you know I just really try and uh, you know direct people away from chemical therapies mm. because. It's really just a management, and, right. and it's it's kind of sad that doctors have become kind of symptoms managers. They they I, I've had client I had a client with fibromyalgia, and she had it for nine years, and for eight years, all they could do was give her opioids. You know, they they um, they gathered up the list of symptoms and gave a diagnosis of autoimmune that was you know probably fibromyalgia. And they said, there's nothing we can do but help you manage your pain. And so for eight years, she was on uh, opioids. And finally, she got tired of that and got off the opioids and was uh, looking for a way to get away from the pain. And so she came to me. And they always, I'm always the last resort. They've, right. all, they've always I'm in they've the tried everything out. I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... Um, so I took a history. And, you know, she was a very... She's a very tough person. She'd been in the Air Force, and she was an executive in the you know in a man's world, and um, and um, and so uh, she, no one had ever asked. I'm like, what what was going on in your life when when this started? And it turns out she was going through a really bitter divorce with mm-hmm. a custody uh, battle, and she was really tough on the outside, but emotionally she was a marshmallow. And what she did was. She somatized this pain into her body because physically she could take it, but emotionally she couldn't. And when the divorce settled, and the you know she moved on, they be, they be, became co-parents, and you know things settled. She held on to this because she, her subconscious was still afraid of that emotional pain and the exposure to it. So I took her through some sessions to help her lift that pain. You know, it began with. Are you ready to let this go? She goes, if I could let it go, I'd have done it years ago. I'm like, well, if you could let it go, if you could let it go, are you ready? She said, yes. I'm like, and so I just took her through, um, you know, I took her through the process of letting it go and um, and releasing it from her body. You know, the somatic response um, is really powerful. There's a great, another great book, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, love we, that book. Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, what we do is we somatize our emotional problems into our body oftentimes. And there are, there are really basic, uh, basic body syndromes, like unexplained leg pain, you can't run from your problems, or unexplained arm pain, you can't fight your way out of something, or unexplained back pain, you're carrying the weight of the world. And yeah. these are simplifications, but, uh, but it's the basis for oftentimes what people uh, are dealing with. And it's really hard. You know, you can't just come right out and say, Look, you created this, <laughs> and I know your pain is real, but it's kind of in your head, right. you know. So th- yeah, you, you can't you can't approach it that way. What you have to do is you you have to educate and connect dots between their experiences, and then kind of incremental incrementally work your way toward lifting the conditions that created the what they're what they're dealing with. Yeah. Can can anybody be hypnotized, or is there like a, a criteria 
that they have to pass or are there those that can be hypnotized? Great question. Uh, Dr. Spiegel at Stanford will tell you that the research shows that it's 80-20, 80% can, 20% mm. can't. I'll tell you from my experience, if you want to, you can. But if you cross your arms and and say, you know, I dare you to get in, I can't hypnotize you. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, the 20% yeah, okay. are, are tw- the 20% in uh, Dr. Spiegel's uh, uh, population are largely uh, uh, highly analytical. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, but you see, there are inductions to uh, induce hypnosis with a highly analytical. What, you know, what you do is you, you uh, engage them on two different levels at the same time. And what it's all about, hypnosis is all about overloading with message units and triggering the fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. And you can see when, when, you're, when you're loading them up, there's a moment where they escape and you can just see. And their eyes will go into REM, and so, um, so if you're really good and you're and you're and you're really dedicated to to you, you can get even the most highly analytical into hypnosis. There are rapid inductions, and there are there are ways to do it. But you, you know, you never want to do anything. You don't want to lift pain that you don't know the origin for. You don't want to take people into hypnosis that don't want to go. Um, and you don't want to do things against people's will. The, you know, I. I'm really uncomfortable by the stage hypnosis. It serves a purpose, yeah, yeah. you know, to show you how powerful it is. But I'm, I, I uh, occupy the therapeutic realm, and I'm very serious about helping people with natural solutions. And the other part makes me uncomfortable, but it serves a purpose. But I, everything I do is highly intentional, and it's all directed at empowering people with their own solutions. You... You know, you've been in politics, you know, for a long time. Do you see that, especially, you know, we just came out of a year of the political elections. Do you see when, you know, these politicians are on, you know, campaigning, are they using hypnotic things uh, in, in whenever they're speaking or in their their press releases? Do you see any of that? So here are the three things that you need for a hypnotic modality. Yeah. Authority. A doctrine or a paradigm, and you need to feel something. Mm. All right. So let's let's look at some seemingly obvious uh, examples of this: uh, lab coat and stethoscope, mm-hmm. medical books, and medical school. And do you feel something when you go to the doctor? Yeah. Not a good place. Not a good place to have your blood pressure taken. Right. The lab coat, the right. white coat syndrome, and uh, maybe you get good news, maybe you get bad news. Ultimately, you feel something. So, medicine is a hypnotic modality. How about this one? The white collar, the book, pick one, whether it's the Torah, the Quran, the, the Bible, or yeah. the Bhagavad Gita. And do you feel something when you go to temple uh, or church or, or mosque? You know, and people do. They feel something. So this is a hypnotic modality, religion. And politics is no different. Let's, let's look at another one. Uh, Fauci, doctors Fauci and Burks, mm-hmm. virology and epidemiology. And do you feel something when you think about the Rona? I mean, there are, right. there are a lot of people really afraid right now. And so we are under mass hypnosis. Yeah. And then the television repetitively over and over and over and over. And they're showing you overrun hospitals and people, you know, just, it's a hypnotic modality. Yeah. And so um, oftentimes I have to dehypnotize people, <laughs> you know, and uh, to get them to a, a, a state of, 
of uh, homeostasis, and then we can rehypnotize them and go into uh, an area that's beneficial to them. But there's mass hypnosis going on. Television is mass hypnosis. Um, I don't own a television. It's called programming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Right? It's, uh, yeah. So, you know, like with that said, you know, do you think that or have you found that a person can hypnotize themselves? All hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Mm. Uh, all I do is uh, I, I'm a guide. And so um, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. And, and uh, of course, people can learn to hypnotize themselves. Listen, meditation, there's a very thin line between deep meditation and hypnosis. All right. Um, you can be in a trance state in deep meditation. If you enter meditation with a shamanic drumming track, you largely in hypnosis. And if so, what I do is uh, I do it for myself. I, I will write a hypnotic script for myself, record it and play it back. Hmm. I, you're highly suggestible to yourself, you know, because if you're anything like me, you can talk yourself into or out of just about anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> because you know, that's, it's that ration, the rationality part. So, you know, there's, there's two parts of the brain. There's the conscious and the subconscious and the conscious mind is characterized by reason, analysis, logic, decision-making willpower. And the subconscious mind is, is all of our knowns, whether good or bad, it doesn't distinguish between good or bad, just known and unknown. The known is good and the unknown is scary. And the, the problem is, if you've seen the iceberg graphic, you know, the conscious mind is just the tip and the subconscious mind is the body underneath. And so the conscious mind takes in the data from the five senses and, um, and it measures it against our experience in our subconscious programming and if it doesn't if something doesn't comport with our programming we'll come up with a rationalization mm. like for example if your programming is somewhere along the line accepted cigarettes uh, uh but your conscious mind reads the label on the box that says the surgeon general says this is likely to kill you you but you have accepted it in your programming you're going to rationalize that well i know people who smoked into their 90s i was going to die anyway you know and you know you know, you know what I'm saying? So uh, you'll come up with these rationalizations and continue to puff away, even in the face of a, a, a tragic upper rep respiratory disease that's striking smokers. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of smoker clients right now that are that are afraid because of Corona. But uh, but you see what I'm saying? It's uh, the, the conscious mind will come up with a rationalization to overcome your fear uh, because it's known and it's and it's accepted by your programming and your subconscious mind. You know, I see a, a, a lot of patients, especially in their youth, gaining any all these uh, diseases of what we would, what we'd be considering diseases of of age, and a lot of them, you know, we talk to them about generational trauma and how emotions and trauma gets passed down from generation to generation. Have you seen that, and to what extent have you seen hypnosis work with that type of issues? Yeah, so, um, you know, the old argument, nature versus nurture, yeah. what I find is there's a lot of people who attribute things to biology when it's really environment. Mm -hmm. um, I see it in depression, and women present with, uh, you know, depression. And, and when I begin to ask them questions about their mom mm -hmm. and their early experiences, and maybe their mom had undiagnosed depression, but when their mom and dad would fight, mom would withdraw and be reserved and be sullen. And so this depressive behavior was learned early on in childhood. I, I go back 
I go back to childhood and family structure with every client. I, mean, I want to know what their experience has been. Um, now, in the Human Givens Project, they'll tell you that you're in REM in vitro and you're getting a download from your mom. So there is there is uh, evidence to suggest that there we have things passed down, uh, but there's the the environment of our childhood when from zero to eight we are in hypnosis. We are mirroring and matching the people in our sphere of influence, and we are a sponge, and this becomes our, our programming for the rest of our life. And we compare everything to that early experience. About 10, 11, we begin to form our own personality and, and emerge into the world as ourselves, but it's highly influenced by that early experience. So um, with hypnosis, it's it's um, because I go back to the child. I do a lot of inner child work and connect people with that inner child. You know, we have these subpersonalities. We have an inner adult. We have a and there's transpersonal uh, stuff. There's we have an inner adult and inner parent and an inner child. And um, it's really important that we're in touch with these subpersonalities. And so um, so I do inner child work, which is largely regressing people back and so you take them into hypnosis and you uh, paint the picture of the details of their childhood and have them uh, see themselves as that child and you put them in the environment and have them see and trigger memories and and then just tell them you know to love on them and, and everything's going to be okay and connect with them and know that they can connect at any time and um, and so it's really healing that inner child uh, I, I had I had a client who was extremely successful psychologist and um, they uh, had hit a they had three clinics and they they had hit kind of a ceiling and they wanted to push past the ceiling or trying to write a book and uh, it turns out that he was very hyperactive as a child and his, and his father had locked him in a closet because uh, he didn't know how to deal with him and so you know freeing that that little boy from the closet was uh, was a very uh, empowering thing and so um, there are, I believe, in past life regression. I do past, I do past life regression. I believe in that myself. Those who come to me and want, uh, but I, but you know, interestingly, I've had people ask about past life regression, and we've been able to find things in their early childhood that, when I regress them back, I can regress people right back to infancy. And uh, I recently had someone who uh, had a, a phobia over um, giving blood, and they'd had blood work. You know, they'd been through disease and everything they did, but giving blood, that going to the uh, the the mobile blood uh, uh, center and do, just created a, a sense of uh, fear, fright, and he ran away. And so um, he thought, you know, maybe there was something in, in his past life. Well, it turns out I regressed him to an early childhood, it was an infancy uh, moment, and it, it was in the 40s. And. He'd seen the cars and the houses, and he heard his mom say that your uncle died on the operating table, never give blood. And maybe he was talk, she was talking to him. Maybe she was talking to someone else, and he overheard it. But he remembered that. And when we freed him, uh, you know, when I took him back to that, and he understood what the origin of this was. You know, he, he no longer had that problem. So um, there, there is, um, there is generational trauma. I, I believe that to be true. I believe that the experiences, you know, that, um, that our ancestors have had can pass it on. 
But you know, do they do it on a cellular level or do they do it on an environmental level? That, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. And it doesn't matter because yeah. I'll regress to whatever point it requires to, um, to help the client resolve that, that issue. So that was part one of my interview with Norman Plotkin. To be continued next week in part two. If you're not yet on my email list, head on over to TriplePlayPerformance.com. So TriplePlayPerformance.com. Jump on my email list. You'll get a free 16-day email series that will walk you through some of the biggest things that I utilize with patients that can get them back on their road to health. I'm going to give you all the things in there of what things I look for and what things you can be doing to improve your health and get your back on the right foot. So stay tuned for the next episode. Again, this is Dr. Mike with Triple Play Performance Podcast saying be well and aloha. If you've enjoyed this podcast, leave us a five-star review. Connect with me on Instagram at TriplePlayDoc. Stay tuned for more episodes. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the entire world. Till the next episode, be well and aloha.